1: Ben Jarofsky Show for this Friday, January 5th starts now. On today's show, it's Oh What a Week, and Ben talks the top stories with CEO and President of Think Inc., Lori Glenn. The Ben Jarofsky Show is a presentation of the Chicago Reader. Chicagoreader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. If you want to know what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to drink, if you've got questions related to chicago about chicago you might want to head to chicagoreader.com it's just kind of like it's in the name you know and if you want more ben jarofsky head to chicagoreader.com forward slash jarofsky that's j-o-r-a-v is in victory s-k-y
2: hello again everybody ben jarofsky here we're calling this unsung heroes friday and here's why Actually, it's over a week Friday. My uh, guest, uh, wait, patiently waiting, is, is the great uh, Lori Glenn. Been a long time since LG's been on the show. She's been busy. She's Lady Lori. She's darting around the world doing all kinds of things, but we're going to bring her on. She's got a lot to say uh, about a lot of issues. If the show that follows is as good as the pre show that went before <laughs> it, good God, we'll win a... What do you win? Like uh, for what I do, I don't know what you win. We'll win something. All right. I just want to open with this little uh, this story that I saw in the New York Times. It has nothing to do with the uh, issues of the day. I just thought I would break uh, – I mean, there were so many other can- – we'll get to, like, Donald Trump uh, potentially being bounced from the uh, ballot in Illinois. Uh, I just saw breaking news about Ed Burke getting his pension. There's all sorts of local news to talk about. Realtors uniting uh, to <laughs> – to uh, stifle, uh, bring home Chicago, uh, which would raise money by taxing sale of the most expensive houses in Chicago. It's funny. I had a conversation with a lefty I know who will remain anonymous who's going to sell his home. And he goes, Ben, you know, uh, ordinarily I'd be with this, but I want, I want to make more money. <laughs> I love you lefties, okay? All right. You're not going to get let that ideology get in the way of making more money. Anyway, uh, lots of stuff to discuss um, with the great Lori Glenn. But I I just want to open with this. This is an obituary that really caught my attention. Every now and then I uh, talk about some obituaries I read in the New York Times. Say what you will about the New York Times, uh, and I'm always criticizing them. I think their obituary writing is second to none. Uh, And I really enjoy uh, reading their stories. like tales and parables. That's a good... uh, uh, way of looking at it. Uh, Maureen O'Donnell used to do it for the Sun-Times, right? parables about people's lives and like leaving like, you with useful information uh, that can help you get through life, or ir- ironies that you think about. This is more in a, the second category. Here's the headline. Maureen Sweeney, whose weather report saved D-Day, dies at 100. That hit me when I saw that on a number of levels. Um, number, no, the obvious level is that that generation is really old. And that's my parents' generation. Oh, my God, that means I'm old. Uh, So, I mean, there's that personal level, you know. Like Everybody that was young and vibrant when I was a teenager and a kid is now have either passed this earth or they're like 100 years old. Son of my mind, blowing, baby. Uh, Anyway, Maureen Sweeney was, and I'll just boil down this great story, which I urge everybody to read if they can. Shout out Alex Traub, who uh, wrote the story. Uh, she was a postal clerk in ireland uh, back in the 1940s let's think about that she was like 21 years old postal clerk at a small town in ireland and her job back in those days in addition to processing mail uh was to keep track of weather reports uh that apparently that was the assignment that was given to postal clerks in ireland uh back in the 40s as such she was the person, the postal court, who transmitted the crucial weather reports. Follow me on this, youngsters. You're going to learn a little history, whether you want to or not. To General Eisenhower and the other leaders of the um, the forces that were just about to invade France. And yeah, we're going to tie it all together with my distinguished guest, a French theme today. Uh, they were about to invade France. Uh, France to drive the Nazis out of France, to drive the Germans out of France, uh, and begin the last year and a half. What was it of the uh, European theater, the, the the fight against fascism uh, in Europe, uh, and uh, defeat Hitler. And originally, uh, Eisenhower, General Eisenhower, was the leader uh, of the uh, forces against Hitler. Wanted to um, go invade France on June fifth. But her weather reports, Maureen Sweeney's weather reports, uh, pointed out that uh, June 5th would be a tumultuous day weather-wise. Storms, high waves, not a day to invade choppy seas, etc. and so forth. The planes, too much clouds. The planes couldn't see where they were going to bomb. So they, based on this postal clerk's weather report, they postponed the invasion by one day. And military historians, but I don't know if you ever met this ilk of uh, people, military historians. I've known a few in my life and they are a special breed of people. <laughs> you move armies here, you move armies. They really get into telling the story about armies a little too much, I might add. I don't know, something going on there. Anyway, uh, military historians have accredited Maureen Sweeney, this 20-something year old postal clerk uh, from Ireland for saving the day, uh, because if had they not had that information, uh, had General Eisenhower not had that information, uh, and he launched that invasion on the fifth, I don't know if it would have been as successful. Uh, they could wouldn't be able to see their targets. Uh, many many soldiers would die uh, in the choppy waves, uh, and uh, so who knows what the outcome would have been. So it's a story that uh, indicates, and here's the lead: on certain rare occasions ordinary people in the midst of an average day have changed history. And uh, Maureen Sweeney uh, definitely fits that category. Uh, So rest in peace, Maureen Sweeney. Uh, You are a hero in my book. Also a hero in my book, Lori Glenn, LG, we call her. Uh, Welcome back, Lori.
0: Hi, Ben. It's great to be back.
2: Yes, it is great to see you. And Lori Glenn, as a longtime listeners to the show know, is a political strategist and a master or mistress, I don't know what the word is, of shaping public opinion in her own way, I think, uh, and uh, overseeing strategies uh, to get people to want to do the things they probably should have done to begin with, which is like, I don't know, not be a racist. There you go. Yeah. There's a- I know you, Sometimes you have to shape strategies in another way. You know, it's not in your best interest to be a racist. Uh, <laughs> taxes will go up if you're a racist. Oh, wait, when you put it that way, maybe I won't be a racist. Anyway, Laurie, uh, welcome back to the show. I know there's something you want to talk about up front, uh, and it's related to France. That's kind of why I began with Maureen Sweeney, uh, whose weather report. This, by the way, was in the days before Tom Skilling, ladies and gentlemen, when you had all the computer technology, all right? So don't <laughs> What's the big deal, Ben? No, it's just, this lady was uh, updating the weather, like looking out the window type thing. Um, anyway, uh, that's why I kind of felt it was uh, appropriate to begin with the tale of Maureen Sweeney, uh, whose weather report saved D-Day. Uh, what's on your mind, Lori Glenn?
0: Well, thank you, Ben. And uh, again, it's always great to be here with you. And um, so what's on my mind is uh, is race. It is uh, racial profiling and the whole issue of institutional racism and hate. Uh, Unfortunately, that seems to be pervasive throughout the world. And I've been really fortunate, uh, actually, to live my life both in the United States and in France and uh, have combined uh, these two together together. Uh, with this uh, really uh, important program that will be virtual and happening on Wednesday, January 10th, from 11 to 12.30 a.m. Central Time. And it's called Between Two Worlds, Racial Profiling by Police in the U.S. and France. Brings together journalists from both sides of the Atlantic to examine the links between the record rise of police stops involving black drivers in Illinois, and a wave of violence across France last summer after police fatally shot a French-born youth of Algerian and Moroccan descent at a traffic stop outside of Paris, and. Think Inc., my consulting firm, it's a political and public affairs consulting firm, uh, has been working uh, and uh, helped to launch the investigative project on race and equity that Laura Washington is the chair of the board. And their goal in their project, this project, um, is to create journalists or to help inform journalists to be Data and inf- do use data-informed work on issues around race and equity, and they launched the project uh, with WBEZ working with Alden Lowry, who is their data projects editor, and Matt Kiefer, their data editor, uh, with Angela Caputo, who's the project director and a longtime journalist. Uh, formerly with the Chicago Reporter, on the, and is the now Project Director of the Investigative Project on in Race and Equity. And for the last several months, starting in September, they launched a series of reports uh, that analyzed data over the past 20 years. Uh, when Barack Obama, who was a state senator, he created legislation to try and stop uh, racial profiling by police and these stops that would happen. And let's just say that didn't go so well. And they released these reports to show that uh, stops by by police of Black men are higher than they've ever been. And then it seemed to me this past summer when they had these unbelievable um, uh, riots uh, because of this uh, very unfortunate young Black man who was murdered by the police. And uh, bringing them together, there'll be this very dynamic discussion uh, moderated by Rakaia Dayo, who is actually one of the leading Black French journalists, author, filmmaker, and activist for racial, gender, and religious equity in France. And our Cheryl Corley, uh, Midwest Bureau Chief with NPR and formerly a correspondent on NPR's National Desk, primarily covering criminal justice issues. And they will co-moderate this event. Uh, and it will include Alden Lowry, Matt Kiefer, and Angela Caputo, who uh, worked on the Chicago, And then Helena Barcao, who's the editor-in-chief of the Bondi blog in Paris, Anas Dayeth, who's a journalist with France 3 and the creator of the Al Intersection podcast around race and equity issues, and Nora Hamadi, who's a journalist with Arte, France Culture, and editor-in-chief of Fumagene magazine. So... This is going to be a very powerful discussion, and it is co-sponsored by WBEZ and the investigative project, as well as Block Club and other local groups and groups in France. So if you are interested in attending this virtual program, you can go to uh, WBEZ's website to sign up or the Investigative Project, or Think, Inc. Strategies. And please uh, sign up for what will be a very dynamic discussion. It's going to be 90 minutes. It will also be taped, so you can see it afterwards. Right. But I think that you know, this is one of the most important issues, uh, which is systemic racism. And that's what this demonstrates, is how the police systems in both the United States and France, unfortunately, um, uh, demonstrate racist tendencies. All right, sure. let's
2: let's uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about France uh, because we've had many conversations about this uh, issue how how it affects people uh, in the United States. Uh, but let's talk about France. You caught me off guard uh, when you sent out the press release originally uh, and uh, then when we had the initial conversations. I like to think I know everything about everything, but this one I was not really uh, up on. Uh, This particular dynamic in France. I do recall the summer uh, when there was rioting in France. Why don't you talk a little bit uh, about the dynamics in France and Paris in particular, relationships between the um, Africans, uh, French people who live in Paris, uh, and the white police. Uh, There's a lot of similarities and parallels what's going on here in the city of Chicago. We'll talk about in France. Go ahead.
0: Well, in France, you know, we think of France as a democracy with egalite, fraternity, and liberte. And they have a concept called laïcite. And laïcite means that we are all French. You're not black, you're not brown, you're not a Jew, you're not a Hindu, you're not a Muslim, you're not a Catholic but after um, the French Revolution, uh, the French became very suspect of religion, and this became a very secular society. And that meant that you could not distinguish that we are all equal under the law. And people, whether it be on the left or the right, will argue that you should not be wearing uh, a a scarf on your head, uh, because you should not in school, because you should not be bringing anything religious in school. So you might have read about how when women would wear scarves in schools in France, they would be banned. And feminists would be against it, and right-wing people would be against it. But What they were really doing was, in fact, inciting symbolism and radicalism in their own way. But so you have La Cité in France, which basically says we are all French and we're all equal. Now, the reality is, though, if you go into Paris, as uh, I've said to Ben before, and I was in Paris uh, the end of August and early September this year again, and I have been fortunate to live between these two cultures for many years. I walked from Northern Paris all the way across the city. So I went from the very top of Paris near the top down to the seventh arrondissement where we have the Eiffel Tower. So as I'm walking through Paris, I'm going through um, Maison Rouge, which is a um, neighborhood, they call them quartiers. And it's primarily a quartier that is filled with Africans uh, and uh, people that are black. And it is primarily, it's not a wealthy community. It is a low-income community. In some ways, it's a poor community. And as I'm walking through Paris and I'm going towards the 7th arrondissement, we get go from being very, very, very uh, sort of uh, Poor, and increasingly do we see uh, class increase, and also increasingly do we see it becoming white. And also in Paris, you have the banlieue, which are the suburbs that surround Paris, and uh, mostly in those suburbs, many of them, they are poor, they are Muslim, and uh, it's very similar to what Cabrini-Green was in Chicago and um, the public housing that was poor and very broken down in the city of Chicago for many years. And it's infamous. And you have a lot of people and, uh, in these suburbs and they do not have good health quality health care. They do not have good schools. They do not have the kind of jobs that you have in other places in France. Or in Paris for sure. And people will argue though and say, oh no, that's not true. Everybody has got the same, everyone has the same. And so this can be a huge fight, even between people who would be progressive and leftists and people on the right. And because everybody says everybody's the same, but they're not the same. And you know, you know, France was an imperialist nation, and they were in countries all over Africa and all over the world. And now these countries that they uh, were once in, they are French and then they come into Paris and they come into France and they're like, actually they're Muslim and they're or Hindu or whatever, or Jewish or whatever. And they come and they live in France and they go have to be French (laughs) before they're anything else. Now we in America, and there's another theory called communitarianism, which means that we come into the United States and we're a melange, we would say, you know, we're Jewish, we're Catholic, we're Christian, we're Muslim, we're Hindu, and we're all together, and we're American, and that's fine, and we identify as such, but, and then we want to count, we want to say, to ensure that there is equity in our systems, there have been laws created so that we can see how many black people, or brown people, or women, or men, or trans people are in a system. We, we identify them even through the census, right? That is actually interdict, meaning illegal in France. You are not allowed to count anyone. Now, some people will claim that's because when the Germans came into Paris in World War II, they were able to easily find the Jews uh, to take them to concentration camps because there were so many good files and systems the French had, so it was easy for the Germans and uh, the Nazis to come in and find the Jews. But one would now argue uh, that um, it had a very major consequence, which is that you cannot in France count how many men or women are in government or in any company or any corporation, public or private. You can't know how many black people or brown people or whatever people are in any system. Now, I would argue that's important because if you look at laws like um, the Federal Home Loan Disclosure Act, if Gail Sincata, who was uh, incredible activist I was grateful to know from Chicago and others in a coalition that uh, was able to pass the Federal uh, Federal Home Disclosure Act, which meant that we could identify where financial institutions made loans and where they got their deposits from. And if we weren't able to do that, we wouldn't have had the data to show that banks were doing redlining. And if we couldn't have shown through data-driven analysis that banks were actually redlining, we would not have created the Community Reinvestment Act, which is a federal law that means that financial institutions must meet the credit needs of low and moderate income communities, as well as wealthy communities. So a bank cannot just take uh, deposits from communities without also giving them the access to credit, which allows people to go up the credit ladder of life, to get credit cards, to buy homes and cars and live the American dream. So this is actually incredibly relevant uh, because between these two countries where you see that police have been used as a tool of repression uh, Mm -hmm. in both the United States and in France and police have been in and also one important thing that americans don't understand is that in the in america we have a system that is you are innocent until proven guilty whereas in france you are actually guilty until proven innocent and actually many of the tools that prevent police in our country from taking someone to jail in fact you can a police person could just say, you look suspicious and you're coming with me and you're going to jail in France. So they do not have the same rights that we have here in the United States in many ways. And all of this, um, so in France, which we consider a democracy, uh, like our own democracy, it's actually not exactly the same. And they're dealing with complexity of issues that, even we don't deal with here in the United States.
2: All right, let me just uh, interrupt and just say that it sounds um uh n- what is what's the right word ideal or naive uh, uh to uh to to say that um there are no black frenchmen, there are no white frenchmen, they're just frenchmen. And that's the equivalent I think of what people in this country will say, I don't see race. Uh, which I always thought was a preposterous statement because I think pretty much anybody in the world, the first thing they see is race uh, in the United States. And then they act accordingly. Uh, and that, that's anybody. So it's black people, white people, Asian, right. etc., cetera, and so forth. The first thing you see is race. And then you, and then you make your uh, your assumptions after the fact. Uh, and uh, sometimes you don't see religion but when you learn somebody's like, say, Jewish, then you make your assumptions. So to pretend as though you don't see race, even though it's the first thing you see is what fooling yourself, I would say, Lori Glenn. And I think a society that dedicates to this notion uh, that it doesn't see race is fooling itself. Am I being too harsh to your beloved Frenchman?
0: No, I, I agree, but they would argue, I've had people of color argue with me. I've had intellectuals of color who went to uh, the equivalent of Harvard, and they would say, I am equal, I am the same, and I'm like, really, you really think that you actually get paid the same as the other man who's got the job you've got as a woman, and you really believe that as a person of color, And they will argue, I am not a person of color, I am French. And I am as equal as everyone under the law while they actually don't have the same equal opportunities. So Wait, don't
2: they have like uh, in France, I okay, one thing I know about France is sports. And so isn't there a lot of hatred aimed at uh, black French soccer players? And well- it happens all the time in France. I mean, Uh, In fact, it's an embarrassment that the national team of France, which I think, don't quote me on this, Laurie, uh, is a majority uh, black. Uh,
0: Well, really, I don't have the sports gene, and so uh, I don't follow sports as much, but I can tell you that when I uh, was working, I, I have the honor of working with a lot of community leaders in France, and after... They came back, a group of people that we had brought over, Uh, the U.S. Embassy in Paris had uh, retained our firm and we brought over two delegations of Muslim leaders, uh, one elected and the other community people who became trained in community organizing. And the group from the community organizing training uh, connected with uh, Open Societies, which is George Soros's group, and they had a lawsuit in France uh, to stop racial profiling by police. This was actually several years ago. And I was honored to be able to actually go to the court to watch this trial, which was really quite amazing. It's very different there than it is here. And one of the um, people who were to testify about racial profiling was late because he was black and he got stopped by a policeman on the way to to the courthouse and so the irony of that when he got up there to say well i'm really sorry i was late but i was racially profiled by a policeman as a, on my way and they made me late
2: all right i will not ask you any I promise when we no sports more sports questions on this though i would i would i urge you to look into the uh the the incidents of racism uh and the, and the cat calls that go are directed at uh, black french players uh, this is a big issue in sports throughout europe not just France, Italy, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, as uh, Juan Gonzalez says, uh, colonial soldiers, uh, their descendants come home, if you will, to the uh, home countries of the countries that they fought for uh, right. in various wars. And uh, then there's issues in these countries with people that look different, even if you say they yeah. don't like what your looks don't matter. Uh, one last thing before we move on from this. Your thoughts on the compiling of lists. I was the—I hadn't really thought about this until you uh, mentioned it this morning. Um, yes, I understand that it's really important uh, to have information that helps us to battle uh, racism. Yes. Um, I also am a little sympathetic to anybody who feels like it's too intrusive. There's too many lists. Uh, And what could be a tool uh, could also be what uh, a stick to punish you. Um, So I see the other side of the uh, of the issue on this one. Go ahead.
0: Right. Well, once we see equity or equality in terms of the numbers of women, the numbers of people of color in real decision-making positions of power and authority in businesses on board of directors uh, of major corporations and our government um and and once we see that there's equ- equity then I, you know you can talk to me about how lists are intrusive but right now uh, I think it's really critical to be able to know that I just read that once again the wealth gap, uh, between men and women are increasing again. Okay. Yeah. Uh, holding institutions accountable. You know, people use this term truth to power. Well, to have truth to power, I believe has to be data driven. And I don't want And I think that's when we talk about facts versus assertions. So we have so many people uh, in what is called X formerly Twitter and all these social media platforms yeah. that I disparage myself because it's based on assertions and it's not based on the reality of, uh, the facts. And so I'm a fact-based.
2: Person. Fair enough. You did a great job of countering. Uh, I, I w- raised the white flag. You're right. I'm wrong. I didn't even really believe it when I said it. Uh, I just wanted to see how you would respond. Uh, and, I should point out, it's so funny that me saying that I got my start, uh, in, in Chicago journalism, uh, with the, uh, the Chicago reporter, uh, back in the, um, the early eighties when, uh, Lori Glenn was still in kindergarten. And, um, uh, <laughs> uh, and anyway, that's all we did was compile, uh, lists and, uh, that we were sort of at the forefront of that, uh, to show, uh, yeah, Chicago was a pretty prejudiced city. Uh, hello, Chicago.
0: Um, well, Chicago so, and Boston, the most racially divided cities in America.
2: I don't know. Wow, that's a whole other show. I yes. could make. I could yes. put Milwaukee in there. Uh, there are a lot of cities that are battling for that title. So, yeah. I, you know, I. Um, I mean, if we wanted to go into the realm of sports fans, which I know I promise you I wouldn't go into sports. I think <laughs> Boston or maybe the most openly okay, uh, but you yeah. know. Uh, it's, uh, um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if Chicago, I don't know if, it, I think it's a tie. I can't think of one city in the country. No, 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 I can't think of one city in the country where it's just all peace and love reigns. I used to think LA was really cool. And then they taped their city council head of LA. This is, you don't, I know you don't know what I'm talking about. And yeah. we talked about it a little, but she was so blatantly anti-black. It was unbelievable. Okay. It was just yeah and i'm like god dang lady you fit in in chicago i i used to think chicago were the most just like blatantly racist people in the world then i heard that i think she was the president of the la city council i'm like
0: right yeah, yes
2: no. chicago does have this honor all right and uh, i don't know why we don't recognize this we are a, a tribal city we are a city of neighborhoods and people like And they're really important, like the people in Chicago, what parish did you go to? I learned that early. I didn't even know what a parish was. So we do have that distinction in Chicago. We're very concerned about where you live. Chicago is the only city in the country where the people greeted Martin Luther King, our greatest hero of the 20th century, by hitting him in the head with a rock. So Chicago... (laughs) Hard to top that. So you know what, Laurie, upon reflection, you're right. Chicago's number one in terms of <laughs> racial hatred. Yeah, we are number one. What a city we have. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I know you didn't want me to go down that path, uh, but you opened it up for me. All right, um, let's talk uh, something completely different. Love to hear your thoughts about Claudine Gay. And now um, we talked about, With this be like the third day, uh, we talked about her. She's the uh, former president of Harvard Uh, who resigned this week, I would say forced to resign this week. Wow. How do I boil it down? Uh, Because there was a concerted effort by some uh, Harvard alums to drive her out because they did not like the way she answered. Ultimately, their their ultimate uh, reason, I suppose, is they did not like the way she answered questions at a congressional hearing dealing with anti-Semitism in colleges. Uh, I could go on and on About what a fraud hearing it was What fraudulent questioners There are from the MAGA side MAGA uh, Sounds out the alarm of uh, Alleged anti-Semitism When they could use it as a tool against the left And either looks the other way Or embraces anti Nazis Okay Nazis marching in Virginia Alright Now one MAGA person who denounced Claudine Gay Ever said a word about the Nazis marching in Virginia. So I'm like, the, just the latent hypocrisy, Lori Glenn, of what was on display uh, when they went yes. after the president of Harvard because she was too lawyer-like. I admit it was a, a, the worst answer to the question. So yeah. wimpy, so lawyer-like, so ironed out by strategists who tell people what to say, and then they got all confused, I'm teasing Lori Glenn, and they st- stumble over the words instead of just speaking for who they are. But to drive her out as president, uh, I thought was really unfair uh, and um, does not help the cause of liberty and free speech in America, which supposedly MAGA believes in. Uh, So your thoughts.
0: Second president. So there were three of them. Correct. Right. So and they're all three women as well as some of them being of color. And um, I think that uh, first, as someone who does strategic communications, uh, whoever briefed them, uh, definitely I would never use them again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think that technically to answer questions like that, there is a time and place for that. And regardless of who's asking the questions, because of course I agree with you that the people asking the questions shouldn't even be there in Congress. (laughs) So uh, that's not the point. But all of them, I believe, were briefed by the same people, uh, I would imagine, and that they would all come out with the same kind of answers. And really, um, the fact is from their... This is one of those moments in time where you want to come from your heart and say hate has no place on our campus, whether it be for Jews or black people or Muslim people or Hindi people or trans or gay or women versus men or anyone that hate has no place here. And we, of course, would never allow any kind of hate speech uh, to be allowed on our campuses. Period. That would be to protect Palestinians uh, as well as Jews. So I think that obviously the technical response clearly did not meet the moment. And so I'm sorry that they were put in that position by the people who we know are so hypocritical, as you just pointed out. And I also think I want to say right here and now I am a Jew. I'm Jewish. I'm an atheist Jew. I'm a cultural Jew. And I also want to say I've been working on the left. Uh, I have been considered a leftist, a progressive, whatever you want to call that, since I was 19 years old professionally. But all my life, I started in anti-war movements, walking door to door for the independent democratic movement. And Uh, being uh, a leftist uh, since I was a child till now at 65. So I've been doing this a long, long time as an atheist Jew. And I have to say that when I walk into a room with my fellow progressives, or anyone, I always make a point of telling people in some way or another that I'm Jewish. Because I had experiences of walking into rooms where people didn't know, because I don't quote unquote, look Jewish, (coughs) that people would say anti-Semitic things. And then I'd have to leave and say, well, I'm sorry, you know, I'm here to fight for your rights. But if you you can't talk about me as a Jew or anybody, it's just not okay. So I say all this to say that, it makes me extremely uncomfortable as a person because you see, there are bad Jews, there are good Jews, there are bad Palestinians, there are good Palestinians because the whole point is we're just people. And genetically speaking, no one is closer to each other than the Palestinians and the Jews, (laughs) which is so ironic of all of everything going on. And so I would fight always, Uh, for the right of Palestinians uh, to say what they need to say and do, as I would for Jews, as I would for people of color and anyone in their struggles. But what isn't okay is a sense that we cross over into a place where we start disliking people for their identity. And that is for me very frightening Uh, because I have fought all my life for people to not be ever uh, discouraged in life because of something they were, whether it be they were poor or they didn't have as much as another person or because of their color. Now, um, that said, going back to these three presidents who were terribly messaged, and did not speak from the heart. It is absolutely not okay that they were fired because of what they said, because we have a country that is based on freedom of speech. But <clears throat> let us also say, hate speech is not freedom of speech. There is a difference. And uh, it is also that there has been the dog whistle of um, Jewish anti-Semitism. For thousands of years, we are called, you know, we are a tribe, and we are the called wandering Jews for a reason. And um, so, people have a lot of stereotypes about many people, including Jews. And I do believe, as a Jew, that it is absolutely not a good idea for any of the institutions, to uh, from APAC uh, to funders who may be of the Jewish persuasion like myself to use their money to try and influence an institution and claim that they will withdraw their funds if they don't fire the president. That is not okay. That is not the reason to fire a president. It in fact destroys the independence of the institution of higher education. And you now have this gentleman, uh, Mr. Ackerman, who claims that he is going to pull his funds and uh, if this president of Harvard wasn't fired. And then you have him now claiming that Penny Pritzker, who is also Jewish and the sister of our governor, who by the way, I think is doing a great job. uh, And uh, she, he is saying that the board of, Uh, Harvard should uh, reconstitute itself because it supported this president. And again, um, using his influence uh, and funding as a tool to destabilize this institution. And that's not okay. And I say that as a person and as a Jewish person. Uh, Just in the same way, I would say that Israel and Netanyahu, you cannot kill your way to peace. And that as a Jewish woman in the United States, that I believe that the Israeli government is completely wrong. I'm terrified by what they're doing. Uh, I think that the Palestinian people are being destroyed and I'm horrified by this. At the same time, I believe that Hamas is an extremist organization with their dedicated goal still to destroy Israel and get rid of all Jews. And I do believe Israel has a right to exist. And in the same way that Donald Trump, I did not elect Donald Trump and I'm terrified that he will get reelected if we don't stand up and fight the fascism and authoritarianism in our country that is growing in fact, across the world as I know that there are millions of Jews in Israel that do not support Netanyahu, nor what is going on in the West Bank, the extremists there. And an extremist is an extremist. I don't care if they're a Palestinian or a Jew, uh, because it is against our ability to live together. And I believe there needs to be, if not a one state, a two state solution. And right now what you're seeing is Netanyahu is, Terrified of obviously going to prison once this war is over, certainly being removed as president um, or prime minister or whatever.
2: uh, um, Yeah. Prime minister. All right. Uh, So you got a lot to unpack there. uh, I know. It's all tied
0: together. together. It's It's all tied together. together. All
2: right. First of all, his name is Ackman. Uh, Bill Ackman is his name. Ackman, sorry. He's a billionaire uh, hedge fund guy. uh, And uh, he went to Harvard. Um, I didn't see his SAT score, so I don't know if he got into Harvard because he earned the right to get in there or because uh, he is the son of a Harvard grad. Just teasing Ackman, okay? That's a joke, all right? That's just a joke, Bill Ackman, because it gets into the whole issue. It, it, one of the things that he did that I found uh, most uh, hateful and obnoxious is immediately after uh, he, he he was upset by Gay's response uh, and the response of the, the president of the University of Pennsylvania and the, pre, uh, and the president of MIT. Uh, and this questioning by a uh, congresswoman, Stefanik, who's a MAGA congresswoman from New York. I uh, never said one word about Nazis marching through Virginia, as far as I know. Uh, and I'm not sure Bill Ackman ever said one word about Nazis marching through Virginia for that point. Uh, and I'm not sure Elon Musk ever said anything about uh, Nazis marching through Virginia. Now I'm just thinking about all the people who supposedly stand up for free speech and liberty. Uh, and they say, well, Nazis have a right uh, to march through Virginia, but uh, Claudine Gay does not have a right to stumble over her words in response to a gotcha question after a four-hour congressional hearing. It's interesting. So someone has a right to do – Nazis have a right to walk through Virginia. Okay, their First Amendment Protection free speech right to walk through Virginia. Uh, and uh, Elon Musk has a First Amendment Protection free speech right to, print, to allow any hate to go out, any misinformation to go out on – uh, uh, on his platform, uh, Twitter, uh, but Glenn Gay does not have the right to stumble over her words. Okay, that's interesting. You
0: remember Larry Summers <laughs> when he was the president of Harvard and he said that women weren't smart enough really to do math to some effect like that. Science, some... was
2: it math or science? Or it may have been science
0: both. Or both or I mean, STEM. Let's just say it this way. I mean, Larry didn't get fired.
2: No, I didn't <laughs> I... get fired. He had it a first commander protected free speech to insult right. women.
0: So, I mean, this woman was there for six months. She was there for six months, the first black woman to be president of, you know, the most, one of the most esteemed institutions of higher education in our country. And she doesn't last six months. No, well, she that's does
2: Okay, so that, this is the, so Ackman, so he gets offended. What is the first, what's the first thing he does? He goes after the notion of affirmative action. Well, this is what happens when you're uh, only hired because you're black. It's essentially right. what he said. And, so- and I knew I knew he was going to go there. Right. You talked about we talked began this conversation uh, talking about attitudes that people have, subterranean attitudes that they have about people who don't look like them. All right. And you said right. in France that the 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 official position is there are no prejudices we are right. all Frenchmen well we aren't in France we're in the United States of America and nine times out of ten I will say this a white person sees a black person in a position of power Lori Glenn and they go, oh well they got that job because of affirmative action Or there's all these white people walking around the universe saying I didn't get this job because this black person got it you know that as well as I do Lori Glenn no, you no, because you hear I've everybody. experienced
0: it I work in the left. And there have been times when I felt like I didn't get a job because I was white and the person they hired was uh, also younger and of color. And, but that actually means that my work has been successful, in fact. But that, in fact, there's more opportunities for people of color and that it's more competitive because other people have the abilities and the skill sets I don't think it's because it, I think of it differently, which is that it's not because they're oh, it's just because they're black and they're they're incompetent, of course. It's like we've stopped being so racist, and we have more people being highly skilled who can get the jobs that I would get, and they may do a better job than me. and how good it is that we have more people of color doing these jobs. So I have effect i've I've experienced it. I've reacted in the way that people react. But to me, it's like any of these feelings I have, I want to work through them because we live in a racist society. But so people who are black, they walk in the room and they're black. And as you said, everyone has feelings. But the same thing is about Jews. So when it's you walk in the room, people don't know that you're Jewish. I was at a dinner party and that will become very generic. And uh, I, as I've said, my clients are black, brown, and Muslim, Palestinian, I'm very close with the Palestinian community, etc. So um, I was a little nervous. I was at this dinner party, and we sit down and everyone's drinking red wine. And it's sort of a ladies dinner. And uh, everyone is fairly well off, I would say. And Uh, They all travel a lot, and they're sort of every, and I was a stranger, most of these people knew each other. And then out of the blue, this one woman starts talking about her trip to London. And I'm like, okay. And then she started talking about the march in London uh, by uh, people uh, in support of the Palestinians. And I'm like, yes, I understand that. And then uh, she keeps going on, though, and there's a million people. And I'm like, yes, I get that. And I'm fine with everything she's saying, but then she wouldn't stop. And I can't tell you exactly what she said, but as I call it, my spidey sense, the hairs on the back of my neck went up. And when she finally took a breath, I said to what was 12 to 15 women around a table, how many of you are Jewish? And there was silence because I was the only Jew in the room. And um, I'm not saying these women were anti-Semitic, but I will suggest that there was woman one and no one had ever mentioned that there were between 1,200 and 1,400 people who had been murdered and were kidnapped. And only the woman next to me who was also a journalist said, but what about the Israelis as well? And what happened to that? So it's not a tit for tat kind of thing, because this is a long treacherous history slash herstory. But I'm not saying it's always what people say when you're in the room with them. It's also what they don't say. But I definitely felt the conversation was sliding into that infamous anti-Semitism or hate. Because you see, it's just the hate of the other and the stereotypes we create around each other, which are so infamous and deadly.
2: Okay, so wait it's a little while. I was going to ask you. This is one of the things I wrote down to ask you about. Uh, that in the past you've walked into rooms uh, and you've said, "Just so you know, folks, I'm Jewish." Uh, well,
0: I don't say and- it like that I just say it and I I weave it in. I <laughs> weave it in within the first fifteen minutes. I'll somehow say something that uh, makes it very clear that I'm Jewish because I have been in rooms where yeah. people of color have said something anti-Semitic, and I'm kind of like. Okay, this is gonna make it a whole lot harder for us to work together since I'm here uh, to try and create more equity, and you've just said something that says you don't like Jews.
2: So let me ask you this uh if you're in a room uh, and in the in your past and uh, you hear something that uh, is either anti-jewish or heading in that direction, uh, and you say something that indicates uh that you're Jewish, uh, in the hopes that that person who is heading into the anti-Jewish uh, section of the universe, uh, will at the very least yes. not say something. Does it work? Or do people, when they, when you go, well, I'm just saying, uh, I'm just, re- <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean,
0: actually, double well, you know, I mean, you never know. Like I told yeah. you, I had a friend, uh, uh, I went to the Latin School of Chicago for two years, and her father was one of the heads of the largest, uh, he was living in New York while his daughter was living in Chicago, and uh, of one of the largest advertising companies in the world. And we're in her Lincoln Continental, at his rather, and we're driving around, we're like 16-year-olds dating, what, bad girls, whatever. And, and she says, well, I chewed them down. And she certainly yeah. knew I was Jewish. And as I told you, she ended up marrying a Jew later in life, who I felt was a somewhat self-hating Jew who would play polo with the prince in England. But she looked, you know, there was silence, because here I am. Like, she just said, I Jewed him down. And we're both like, and I think she said she was sorry. And I said, I know. But it wasn't this woman who said it. She got that from her daddy. Yeah, <laughs> She got that. So... You know all these things, or we talked about the story that I will not repeat here. That I was called the smartest Jew in the room, and so you, uh, so you, so you, you know, is that you know, like I laugh it off. But is that a form of anti-Semitism? Like, what do you mean? I'm the smartest.
2: It's it's it's, what um, uh, God. I'm okay. Since you asked the question, I've thought about this from time to time. um, So it's benign prejudice. Uh, I would b- phrase it that way, that uh, any kind of prejudice is a little scary because it can lead to real uh, serious prejudice. But benign prejudice is when you, if I could uh, define it this way, offer someone a compliment that is really <laughs> kind of a uh, a prejudice, a bigoted statement. Right. And so the classic one regarding Jews, which has been said to me so many times in my life, and I just you kind of just laugh at it because it's freak, freaking absurd is that I'm going to hire a Jewish lawyer or a Jew lawyer. I've had so many people, mostly, by the way, just saying this, Gentiles. I don't think I've ever had a Jewish person tell me I'm going to hire a Jewish lawyer. I can't recall. And I know a lot of lawyers in the world, uh, Lori, and many of them come on this show. uh, And... I do not think there's anything about Jewish people that makes them better lawyers than non-Jewish people. If I'm in trouble, I'm hiring. Well, he's dead. Johnny Cochran. He's not Jewish. Okay. (laughs) You know, if I'm in trouble in Chicago, April prayer, I got your number. She's not Jewish. All right. So there's a lot of uh, people that obviously Gentiles who are very good lawyers, Phil Corboy, the legendary personal injury yeah. is in Irish American and Jewish, but so many people, it's like I'm going to hire me a Jewish lawyer. And I'm like, what do you think is about a Jewish lawyer that makes that person better than I don't know Phil Corboy or Johnny Cochran or April Prayer? I, I, what is in your mind about Jewish people? <laughs> like, you know what? I'd rather not know. actually, upon so
0: I think it all goes so. Every which way, there's a very famous black leader who called New York Hymie Town. Uh, there's a very many different people, and but we only know what's in our heart. And I have to say, even I, you know, I had this experience, and I said to someone inadvertently, like I understand that. To their face, and she is a Black woman. And I have a lot of shame over this, but I said, Yes, I understand why they hired you. They had to because you're Black. <laughs> and I meant it that, of course, it's a good thing. But once I said it, I realized I'm screwed. How could I have possibly have said that? So let me put it to you this way I don't think anyone's perfect in the world, I, I just haven't met them. And I think What's really horrible is that on the left, we seek perfection. And when people don't achieve it, maybe we cancel them. And on the right, people are so fear-driven that when people are different from them, that they need so much their life to be in order, their religion. They need their religion. They need so many things to keep them safe. And uh, and they are afraid. I can only think of their hate as being fear-driven.
2: Okay, I got to push back. I'm going to say, the president of Harvard was canceled. And I'm going to say this to all those little, supposedly MAGA anti-cancel people out there who didn't say one word about it. No, you're right. And, and, and you, the, it's a long list. Not one word. Where was Ron DeSantis? Where was Joe Rogan? where was donnie trump where are all the people who say they're anti-woke anti-cancel culture the, the president of harvard was canceled that's what she did but they,
0: never they didn't like
2: what she said
0: to be president they're glad she's gone because well, they the, are. But,
2: that's, but my point is the tool they use was canceled and so right. they say uh we can we can't say what we want. Anything we say will be used against us, and you really just want to stamp us out and uh, groom young children, and that's why you cancel us, okay? that They have this whole ideology. So they then turn around and canceled her and then pretend that there was something virtuous about it. And so I still, I don't, it'll take me a while to get over this, Lori, because there's so much hypocrisy Hypocrisy and hate embedded in what went down
1: with Harvard
2: Uh, and so much deceit because the real, in my humble opinion, you may disagree with me, the real anti-Jewish sentiment in this country is coming from the right. It's coming from the right.
0: Uh, And for, for
2: for MAGA to act like they're defending Jews in this country by beating up on... A black woman who's the president of Harvard, that's the biggest like scam out there. And that's and saying a lot when I coming from a party of scammers and grifters. So that's 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 kind of why I feel the way they you're using anti-Semitism, yes. the fight against anti-Semitism as a tool to beat up a black woman.
0: I agree with to, you, and to perpetuate prejudice, prejudice
2: against black people.
0: I that's agree the, with you. But the right has always been very tact, you know, has tactical. And they will always switch and change what their message is to win. Um, It has always been why it's been harder for Democrats, because Democrats will say, well, we can't say that. We can't do that. That's not fair. That's not okay." I mean, there are many things, you know, things that Joe Biden could do or say, and he won't say that. But the right. Well, they'll say whatever they need to say. They'll do whatever they need to do to win. It has always been the case. They're ruthless.
2: Yeah. I uh all right. I'm- uh so let's close by moving from this topic to uh the, the right and the, the latest bit of sobbing that's been going on for MAGA. MAGA no one feels more sorry for itself than MAGA. Uh they're always crying about being canceled and they can't insult people and uh, they feel that there it's prejudice against them. Meanwhile, uh, I don't know if you saw this, uh, but employees of uh, of Elon Musk, who's Mister Free Speech and Liberty, uh, are suing him because of they feel they are unfairly fired because they dared to defy the leader, um, Donald Trump, are uh, uh, the leader, MAGA's leader, the number one person in the polls. Uh, For the Republican nomination uh, for president in the 2024 election uh, is um, the target of an effort by citizens of Illinois. They're joining forces uh, with citizens throughout the country to uh, have him removed from the ballot on the grounds that he's violating the rules. There are rules and regulations that govern ballot. Lori Glenn, as I pointed out yesterday, cannot just say today, I, Lori Glenn, am running for president. No, Lori Glenn, there's rules you have to do. She has to collect a certain number of signatures. She has to put her address on the forms. She cannot lie about the address that she puts on the form. She has to be over the age of 35. She has to be a U.S. citizen. She has to be born. There are rules and regulations you have to follow. You can't just say, oh, I'm running for president. And one of the rules, it's in the 14th Amendment, you can go read it yourself, is that you can't have participated in an insurrection against the federal government right. uh, if you sworn an oath to that federal government. You can't. It's a rule. It's in the 14th Amendment. It's in the Constitution. Sorry, Donnie, you broke the rules. You led an insurrection. Now, Donnie Trump and MAGA are sobbing. They're crying like little babies because they want the right, Lori Glenn, to break any rule they can, not have anything enforced against them, and they will still get to have insurrections even though the U.S. Constitution says you can't have an insurrection. Do you think, in your humble opinion, as a political strategist, that it is too dangerous for uh, Democrats – to, or anybody, to move to kick Donald Trump off the ballot because he's so clearly violating the rules because it will stir up, what, get MAGA even madder than it already is, get him out to vote, and maybe get a few of what I call the Rahm Emanuel swing voters because you always worry about them, like suburban swing voters the David Axelrod or Rahm Emanuel swing voters, that they'll somehow go, this is unfair. I'm going to vote for Donald Trump because the Democrats are unfair. As a political strategist, as a political consultant, as a woman who's been in this game for a long, long time, do you think the Democrats are hurting themselves with this movement? Go. Uh,
0: I am worried. I think that what I'm more worried about, so that it does galvanize his base. I don't think it makes Republican women uh, come out or even, you know, suburban women come out for him. I, I don't think it does that. But it does set precedence. It makes me nervous. I mean, at, you know, personally, I'm like, "Yay, this is great! I love it! I love it!" But what I'm more concerned about, Ben, is our own base and the lack of energy that people have around Joe Biden. And I'm more concerned because I think Joe Biden has done an incredible job uh, against everything, all odds. And I think he's gonna come down as, I mean, he is the first president to get any major legislation passed in years. He's actually done, I just wanna say for the record, a phenomenal job. And I don't give a shit that he's 80 years old, okay? Because it's, he, when you are a president, it's like uh, it is, you, you are putting people in positions of authority. The job numbers are incredible. That just came out for December. We are going to most likely have a soft landing in terms of the economy. Uh, He created the largest legislation to actually address infrastructure and the environment. He is just, I think, making all the right moves and would I like him to do more, of course. But actually, he has really been trying to be and his team strategic about how far they can take America at this time. And his own base is divided. And obviously Netanyahu is not doing him any favors and why he, you know, and I'm glad he's finally really parting ways with this real madman as far as I am concerned. And so my concern is not as much about, uh, oh yeah, it feels good or that we know Donald Trump is a fascistic authoritarian madman. What scares me is that so many Americans would want him in office. That what, you know, like what has happened to America, you know, the impact of COVID on mental health of people. I don't think it can be underestimated. Uh, our sense of community, how it's been impacted and this rise globally of fascism is scary to me. So you take him off, you don't take him off, Like. Okay, you want to use that tactic, but what I want to know is how are they going to galvanize the base to actually turn out as they did before to say no to fascism? That's what I care about.
2: That's and- that. That's a that's a, a a great riff. A very important point. Uh, it's different than the one I was raising, but it's absolutely a very important point. Uh, yes, uh, to try, to galvanize people around if 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 you can't get people in america for whatever reason to be excited about joe biden who's 81 by the way just uh not 80 <laughs> just said to throw that in there. Uh, 81 okay uh what 80 81 what's the difference uh if you can't get people to uh support him for whatever and there's multiple reasons that uh, people tell me why they cannot in a million years support joe biden uh then i'm i'm uh, at least say okay uh look at what's on the other side of the coin. And Candace Castillo was on the show yesterday, uh, and she was pointing that out. Um, I don't know if I, I don't know if we're there, uh Lori, at this point in time. And I don't know if we'll get there. And by this I mean, are people in this country so turned off by Democrats that they don't care if a fascist is elected? Are they so upset at joe biden for anything from how he uh what i don't know how how he embraced netanyahu uh when he visited israel uh, after the uh outset uh, after the october 7th slaughter uh to uh, he wasn't forceful enough let's say uh on pressing on uh the railroads. I've heard people talk to me or lefties uh, talk to me, but he isn't strong enough when it came to uh, dealing with railroad workers. So uh, I even saw, this one What blew my mind, uh, Laura. I may have said this to you. There's like abortion rights activists who say they're going to have a, a march before the right. Democratic Convention. I'm like, I why are you having a march before the Dems? What? Right. Nothing to right. me says more about like how weird liberals are no, but,
0: I think that. but but actually, bang, America, as we know, just like uh Jewish people aren't monolithic, Palestinians aren't monolithic, brown or black Americans are not monolithic, and I think what we're really looking at is uh the changing it's 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 a generational shift that's going on, so you know, I've watched uh frankly uh Palestinians have been so strategic over many years now, over the last 25 years in changing the narrative and really uh, building a base in universities and colleges across America. Israel went from being like in the 60s, the land of peace, love, uh, you know, uh, socialism, uh, kibbutzim, uh, planting trees, to a severe arrogance in thinking they could just buy Congress through AIPAC and just an inside game, and screw what the world thinks of us. They all, always hate us, so we don't need them. I mean, so stupid. I've been watching this just going, as we proverbially say, oy vey, are you kidding me? This So, I mean, bravo to the brilliance of the Palestinian leaders who understood that they needed to build a base, and they did. And the uh, Israeli government has not, especially when you look at the... Defense Minister in early on uh, of the this now what you would say war uh, called Palestinian people animals. And that is just unacceptable. My whole point to you is that there is a new <clears throat> generation going on in our in this world. And Joe Biden is part of another, a narrative. These people didn't go through D-Day. They don't probably even know what D-Day is. No, I know, I know, They may not know about concentration camps and that six mil, 18 million people dead, 6 million Jews killed. This means nothing to them. So this whole generational shift is really enormous. It is the end of the baby boom. It okay. Really
2: I just think there's something preposterous about... That was a great riff, but it doesn't deal with the preposterousness of a abortion rights group targeting Democrats. This is like if there's one issue that unites Democrats, it's pro-choice. So it's like what a wasted effort to act as though you have to put pressure on Democrats to be pro-choice. All it does is suggest that there's some kind of equivalence between Democrats and Republicans on this issue. It's so freaking absurd. I I know Lori Glenn was not advising this group. Because yeah. Because this this is like I mean I think of all the all the strategists that come through this show uh in one way one time or another. Candace Castillo, uh, Joanna Klonsky, P.C. Peter Cunningham, jo- Joanna, Cl- uh Lori Glenn. I don't think any of them were advising this group. That's like the,
0: it, right. I, one of the
2: dumbest things – I'm just going to say it. It's one of the dumbest things that yes. I've seen coming out of the left. And I've seen – I don't even know if it's real left. I mean, out of left, liberal, who Who knows? I just had to give up on you. But that's the point I was making is that the fact that pro-choice activists think they have to target Democrats – undercutting joe biden which is like this is the one issue that he's the clear champion on just shows you where our country is in regards to trump if you're a pro-choice activist you better be afraid of maga ladies and gentlemen you better be afraid of it they're the ones who are passing the laws in texas and indiana and ohio it's not joe biden and the democrats if you want to protest go protest at the republican convention.
0: Right. But what I guess I want to say is that also what this is part of, too, we no longer have a national narrative, right? So what Trump so effectively did is he broke down uh, people's trust and belief in institutions, which was already waning. But he made it okay to lie, to cheat, to steal. It's okay. It doesn't matter. You can... um, And people... And also, I mean, I think the worst thing that ever happened to democracy was the FCC ruling in the late 90s that stopped the Fairness Doctrine, which meant that you could not have a Fox News. You couldn't have extremist debate uh, with the media, and you wouldn't even in social media. And now we're in the Wild West where anyone can say whatever, and people are like, yeah. Yeah, I believe that, and you're like, yeah. why do you believe that? That that's not even true, and so we by destroying the just journalism as an industry, by uh, turning it into a business, we have really harmed people's understanding of what our truth is and our democracy is. And also the other leg of democracy that we really need that I talk about a lot is civility and our inability to talk with one another and people making it this F you, F you, you, And I, I mean, I've done some crisis communications in the last two years that when I saw what people wrote on what was called Twitter, uh, it was horrifying. It was absolutely uh, horrifying the things that people would say to someone else who they didn't even know. So I think these elements all play into what you're talking about, Ben, and creating this instability in our democracy today. Fair and enough.
2: I think, and to add ben that, uh, to add, to close with this, I'm going to just close with this: what those abortion uh, pro-choice activists are doing is what, in tennis, they call it unforced error. And so everything you just said is lined up against the Democrats. And so now you go, well, we're going to make sure the Democrats stay true to their pro-choice. Hello, wow. <laughs> you don't have to worry about the Democrats. All right. Right, I got it. I got I'm going to lose my mind on this one, Lori. I sometimes when I see, I wonder why do Democrats lose? Because they don't know how to play the game. Because they're so dumb. JT, where's Jeanette Taylor when I need her? All right. All right, uh, to tell it like it is. Lori Glenn, thank you very much. Good luck with your uh, panel discussion on uh, on this Wednesday. And uh, she's uh, called uh, Lady Lori. I'm not making this up, ladies and gentlemen. In France, she's huge in France. They always say that Jerry Lewis was huge in France. Lori Glenn <laughs> is bigger in France than Jerry Lewis. Okay. no, 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 no. no. Please, please, please. (laughs) All right, very good. Old friend of mine, Lori Glad. I've known her since the 80s, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, Lori, for coming on my humble podcast, okay? Thank you. And uh, I want to thank Producer Chris. He does an outstanding job. Hey, Producer Chris,
1: give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. and love, everybody. And you can always stay updated on Ben Jarofsky interviews. If you missed any of them, play catch up at chicagoreader.com. You can follow Ben on Instagram, at Show. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and follow The Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.